0: Good morning everybody. Today we have a Q&A episode. It is absolutely frigid in my office. Does anybody else have like one room in their house that just doesn't get heated or gets heated way too much or air conditioned way too much or not at all? Uh I'm sure there's a simple answer for that based on the ventilation system, but this room gets no heat. Uh if I open that door, it's like a, not a sauna, but you can clearly tell that the heat is on. And so we're a little more we're not like bundled up in here, but Nonetheless here, let's see if my thumbs are free and warm enough to do a little bit of work here and go through some of these questions. So thank you to everybody who asked a question. Let's jump right into it. If pre-diabetic, can the timing of carbs around a workout be helpful before or after better? Um, The answer is probably yes in a technical sense, in a meaningful sense, I don't really think it matters. You will have improved insulin sensitivity post-training. What that really ultimately will do for somebody who's pre-diabetic, I'm not really sure. To me, that seems like a really, not majoring in the minors because it doesn't sound like you're necessarily thinking that this is going to be a deal maker or breaker. Um, I don't think it's a bad idea. And you can hear it in my voice. I I don't love just like reinforcing really tiny things that don't have a big impact but but this is probably true Um, as far as people who are dealing with insulin resistance people who are pre-diabetic yeah having the majority of your carbs around training is probably technically helpful but just in a way that i don't think really matters in the scheme of all the other things that are going to be really helpful for for people that are pre-diabetic which is doing exercise in general cardiovascular exercise lifting weights don't have too much body fat, sleep, and literally all the things uh, that you already know to be healthy. Um, eat more fiber, more protein, all of those things. But yeah, I think that this is technically helpful. You are more insulin sensitive, to, uh, insulin sensitive post-training. Um, and that might be a good time to have the not the majority of your carbs, but let's say your largest carb meal of the day if you are pre diabetic. Next question: DB bench press. Should weights tap the nips each time to ensure full ROM? Um, it depends. You know, let's just be honest here. It depends the size of the thing that your nips are on. You know, and so it's gonna it's gonna differ based on the available mobility that you have at the shoulder and the the size of your chest, right? And so. For some people, they're gonna to wanna to come down outside the chest, not touch anything, right? For some people, coming down gently tapping the nip area with the dumbbell is a good way to establish consistent range of motion. I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's gonna be that I think if you do that, it's gonna be really a good range of motion. It's gonna be enough depth, and I think it would be helpful to establish consistent range of motion. I'm a big fan of doing stuff like this when you uh, can can have like an objective end point to the range of motion. So let's say that's like an RDL where you like tap the floor, or that's like a lat pull down where you pull the bar and you tap your your top of your chest, or um, you know a hip thrust. The the biggest benefit of a hip thrust is you don't need to think about how far you should go down. You go down to the plates touch the ground. Um, you know, something like a push-up, trying to get your chin or your nips to touch the floor. These sorts of objective ends of the range of motion can be really helpful, so that each rep is the same. You know, it's tough to know that when things get hard, you're not very subtly, a very uh, in a small amount adjusting your range of motion to compensate for that fatigue. And so, this is going to depend on the person. And I hate to go that route, but I do think that for most people, this is a fine plan. It's going to be a nice stretch on the pecs and the delts if you touch the dumbbell gently to the nip. Uh, and I think it's a good way to standardize the range of motion from rep to rep. But, you know, if I... There are going to be people that I'm like, nope, you should go deeper. Or people that are like, oh, maybe not that deep, right? Depending on the person. Uh, next question. Just finished a diet and 2.5 centimeter growth in the glutes. Training for two years. Slow or typical growth? I have no idea. Um, I have so many questions for you. Just finished a diet? What does that mean? Like, like, like uh if i were to try and add some kind of context here from just trying to read between the lines maybe you did a gaining phase and then you did a cutting phase and after all of that you've gained 2.5 centimeter growth in the glutes i have no i gotta tell you i have no idea because i don't know if you've gained weight over that time if you've lost weight over that time i don't even know what you were doing during training i'm not even sure i even know what 2.5 centimeters like looks like visually. I'm not a huge fan of measurements. I got to be honest with you. I don't really love measurements. I think the scale, I'm not, hear me out. I think the scale can tell you enough of what you need to know from a directional standpoint. Am I gaining weight? Am I losing weight? Great. That's what the scale does. And then I think between how you feel and look in your clothes, right? And and just in the mirror is the other side of the coin. I don't really see, like measurements give you an objective obviously, they give you objective numbers of, of specific spots on your body that have grown or not. But I just, I don't think that is more important than than how you feel or look in your clothes or in the mirror, right? I don't think, if you if you were like, oh, my biceps, you're trying to grow your biceps and they are up, you know, three centimeters, but they don't look like they're up three centimeters, then you won't care. And so I, I don't really love measurements. I think the scale for, for weight directionality and then how you feel in your clothes and the mirror should, like, you should be you should be seeking growth that means something and if it means something you should be able to tell you should be able to tell in your clothes or in the mirror or in progress photos like if you're like if you have no idea other than you know this measurement that you took which by the way you know needs to be standardized when you're taking it what your diet's been what your hydration has been what your bowel movements have been because they're going to be off based on just all the swelling that can happen in different areas of the body, and so I'm not a huge fan of measurements. I don't mean to go on a measurement tirade there. Uh, to me, it, um, you know, two point five cent, like you know, how far are you in your training career? Are you an advanced trainee? Or are you first starting out? Um, my, I'll tell you, my gut tells me that this wasn't a lot. That this isn't a lot of growth over two years. Um, but I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I think you should take some progress photos and and. You know, pay attention to how you're feeling and looking in clothes and and, how your performance in the gym is and make a decision for yourself. I don't think, even if I don't think it's a lot, if you're like, you know what, I can see something, well, then that's what you should go with. That's way more important. Cool. Next question. I'm going to be periodically sneezing and taking sips of water. I will have my editor edit both of them out because they are unpleasant sounds on the mic here. Question Grip strength failing before muscle. Pull ups, RDLs especially have been difficult to progress. Hey, is the most simple answer in the history of the world. Everybody who follows me or has ever listened to the podcast is screaming the answer right now, Versa grips. Either get a pair of Versagrips or get a pair of lifting straps. Go on Amazon, type lifting straps or go to, I don't know if it's versagrips.com, um, but go and get a pair of Versagrips. If you don't want to pay, they're like anywhere from 65 to 75 bucks. If you're like, hey, that's expensive. I don't really feel like spending that. Go to Amazon and get a pair of 10 to $15 lifting straps or type in Versagrips in Amazon and they will, um, they will give you a bunch of really good knockoffs um, that I think are, are literally just as good or at least, yeah. I, I've only used a couple knockoffs and they've been fine. And so that's how I feel. And for cheap, that's what you get. You get slightly worse, but a lot cheaper. So, all right. Uh, next question. Uh, pract- practically, is lifting one to two times a week better than nothing? Yes it's infinitely better than than nothing, right? Let's do a quick math lesson, right? One is infinitely more than zero. Two is infinitely more than zero. Anything above zero is infinitely more than zero. Um, You know, you can't multiply zero by anything and get there, right? And so trying for three, but stuff happens. Want to quit. Oh no, don't quit. Oh my God. Lifting one or two times a week is, is incredible. For people who are new to training, you're gonna gain muscle. For people that are not new to training, you're gonna maintain muscle. I mean, at two times a week, dude, you can maintain all the muscle that you have, unless you're really jacked, unless you're 15 years into training and you've put on a ton of muscle that might not be enough to maintain. But oh my God, one or two times a week is awesome. Um, if you did one to two workouts, that's 50 to 100 workouts per year. Imagine not doing that because it doesn't feel like a lot. A hundred workouts a year super meaningful please don't please don't round down to zero do not round down to zero don't be a all or nothing person be a make the best of it kind of person that's the person you want to be we all want to be make the best of it kind of people um oh my god it's so much better than nothing please don't quit and if you're i don't know if you're in my group program asking this question but please don't quit if you are in my group program and this is happening to you we have a 4 day per week group program actually there are some questions about the group program which is cool um Cause I don't like to like self uh, I'm really bad at like doing self marketing. It's nice that people ask, but whatever, if you're in my group, we have a, it is by default a four times per week program. Um, However, there is a three time per week option in the program. A lot of people are taking advantage of that right now. It's making me super, super happy. It's allowing people to be, be more consistent, have some time back for other things, all that good stuff. If you could only lift one or two times per week, I would make sure that one of those days is the full body option in my group and then do either the upper or the lower day that you prefer for the other workout. And if you only get one day per week, I would do the full body training. Cool. Uh, Next question. Um, Here we are. High quality, low cost equipment wrecks to create a full home gym. Barbell, squat rack, cables, bench. It's gonna be what you're asking is tough, right? Because they're, it's kind of an oxymoron, right? High quality, low cost. Those are like unicorns in the, you know, just in all things. It's like, how can I get stuff that's really good, but not expensive? And so um, off the top of my head, because obviously to do this best, I'd love to do some browsing. Um, for a barbell, I would, honestly, I would look on Facebook Marketplace for all of this. That's what I would do first. And if I can find somebody throwing away something cheap, but of these things, barbell, squat rack, cables, bench, where would I, where would I spend a little bit more to get a little bit better quality? Um, I would spend a little bit more on the cables, and I might even spend a little bit more on the bench, just because I think the bench is something you're going to have for a very very long time. And for like two hundred bucks, for like for like fifty to hundred bucks, you could get a, a like a very not very flimsy like in a dangerous way, but like a light bench that's um, that does the trick, and that might be something you really want to do. I got one from Dicks that I've, I really, I have in my garage still. For like, if I'm doing filming form videos and I'm just too lazy to move the heavy one around, whatever. Um, but it, for like two hundred bucks, you can go to Rep Fitness. Um, two hundred, it's two hundred up to like four hundred. They have expensive ones, um, and they have some sturdier benches that I think are worth the investment. But okay, okay, okay. Um, barbell, squat rack, cables, bench. For for barbell and squat rack, I'm not really familiar with with um, ways to save money here. You know, I think a barbell you can find on Facebook Marketplace. There are people with barbells that are very old that are fine, that have very little mileage on them that you can get. Squat rack, the same thing, dude. Barbell, if you need free weights, go on Facebook Marketplace, man. Barbell, squat rack, bench. Everyone is selling this stuff on Facebook Marketplace. You can find a deal. Get your haggle game on. For cables, look at the. At Costco, they sell, uh, it's called Inspire is the brand. Rep Fitness is another brand. Uh, Titan is another brand. They all sell in that $2,000 range. The Inspire one is in the $1,000 range. Uh, you get to some degree what you pay for. The cables I have in my home gym are in like the five dollars to $8,000 range. You know, you can get something in that like five dollars to $6,000 range from, you can get like a functional trainer from Life Fitness. But if you're in that one to $2,000 range, Rep Fitness, Titan, Inspire. And for benches, I do like Rep Fitness. I feel like they are, I have the one from Prime. It's like $600, but, and that's not a flex. Uh, I, You know, if I didn't do this for a living, I would not buy that. Uh, I like the Rep Fitness ones. When I have clients that come to me and they want to invest in a sturdy bench that they'll have for a long time, but not pay $600, I send them to Rep Fitness. Cool. Uh, Next question. You have mentioned incorporating plyometrics. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, okay, why, so this is more from a running perspective. So if you're not interested in that sort of a discussion, you know, if you're just looking to get jacked and build muscle and be strong, which is awesome, that's like the majority of my content, um, I wouldn't spend a lot of time doing plyometrics. Um, but when we look at, I'll try and keep it simple. When you, when you want to be a good runner, right? When you want to be fast, right? Well, what is a good runner, right? Good runner. You want to run fast. You want to be, be able to run fast for a long time, right? Right. That's what a good runner is. Um, you want maybe three things. You want cardiovascular and local metabolic adaptations. You want adaptations that come from doing a lot of cardiovascular work. That's number one. Number two is you want to be a good runner. You want to have good technique, and you want to have. Uh, I guess we're going to talk about two things. We want to have cardiovascular and local metabolic adaptations. Uh, And you also want to be a good, efficient runner. We want to have what's called good running economy. Um, And so that's everything from good technique, you know, ground contact time, you know, uh, lower limb stiffness. We want to be efficient with our running. We want to, you know, be able to generate more power per step for less energy um, and improve what's called running economy, which if you can... Read between the lines. There, it means make running the movement of running more cost effective from an energy perspective for your body. And one of the ways to do that is to just run more, right? To just run, and and I don't mean run more like all of a sudden go from zero to a hundred, but one your running economy will improve naturally with running more and more and more. Uh, your running technique will improve running more and more and more. A lot of the the, the running technique is a rabbit hole and a half um, that I have gone down, and. One of the biggest things that you can do is not worry about it too much unless you're making some like really, really, really like, unless you're making egregious errors with your technique, like huge strides, like huge heel strikes, unless you're like basically bounding or doing like triple jump, you know, Um, I don't think it's something that at least for a while you need to worry too much about. But what plyometrics can do is work on some of that ground contact time, some of that joint stiffness and some of the durability from an injury prevention standpoint. So, I think that that is something it's what's funny is like that it's easy. So it's easy for me to, to do my running workouts because I'm killing two birds with one stone. I'm getting those cardiovascular adaptations and I'm practicing my technique and I'm becoming a better runner that way. And I'm improving my running economy that way by just doing the running. The hard sell with plyometrics is you're not doing, you're not getting a lot of cardiovascular adaptations, you know, I'll tell you right now, it's funny because like I'm just beginning to coach people in this as well. And I've had a coach for a while and we've been programming plyometrics. They are easily the first thing to go. They're not fun to do at all. They feel very hard, you know, some of them. Like you have to work really hard. You're like huffing and puffing, but not in a way that's giving you really great, robust cardiovascular adaptations. So you're like kind of tired and none of the things are like really fun And it has nothing to do with like looking better, you know? So you can't even like latch on to like some egotistical, like I'm getting, at least I'm getting a pump or at least like I'm building my glutes or like there's nothing fun about it, right? There's nothing fun about it. There's nothing fun about doing it as far as the actual exercises. You're kind of tired, but not really for a lot of cardiovascular benefit. But at the end of the day, it might be the missing link for a lot of beginner intermediate runners who want to be more durable, get less injured and also improve their running economy and, and, By doing that, by becoming uh, more economical, right? Not to be redundant with the word and the definition there, but become a better runner outside of their cardiovascular work and and have running feel, you know, more effortless. Um, And I'm not saying plyometrics are, um, you know, some super magic thing that's going to do all of that to the nth degree, but I do think it is a missing link. Now, it's both a missing link and not something everybody needs to do. This won't be very clear. I would spend time... Running, and I would spend time with your alternate modality like your bike. Uh, I would spend time doing that stuff first. I wouldn't trade it if you're only doing two or three cardio days per week. You don't need to add in a plyometric day, but what you could do is add in some low level plyometrics, skipping, hopping, um, bounding into some of your warm ups before certain runs during the week. And what you can do is you can kind of aggregate some plyometric work during. You know, during your sessions instead of making it its own session. And that's something I'm trying to play around with because I do want to be more consistent with it, but I also know myself like adding in another session that is not fun and feels exhausting is, is a tough sell. Um, but I do think it's important from a durability perspective and a running economy perspective. Um, I think it's a missing link for beginner, intermediate people who really want to get better at running, which again, isn't everyone. I think the vast majority of people should focus on doing the running. And doing their alternate modality work, whether that's a bike or whatever. Next question: How to balance training for a five k slash just running, right? Not not going ham while still prioritizing weight training. the The hardest part about this is just finding time to do the training. I, I, when I when you say how to balance doing them, uh, the hardest part is just allocating the time. Uh, I really I'm not saying there isn't more to it than that. From a how to organize the week. Um, you know, how to, you know, how many of each day you should do. But like, if you're committed to doing like five total sessions a week, at least three runs, two lifts, two runs, three lifts, whatever, then you're already doing the biggest and most important thing, which is actually putting in the work, putting in the miles, putting in the time, putting in the effort, putting in the volume, You're doing the biggest thing. Like no matter what sorts of like little um, intricacies there are from a programming perspective, nothing is more important than actually fucking putting in the hours and the time and the sets and the effort and the volume. And so if you're like, hey, how do I manage this? And I'm like, well, what are you doing? You're like, well, I run twice a week and I lift three times a week. I'm like, all right, you're already doing by far the most important thing. The thing that is the hardest to do, which is find time to allocate towards both of these things. Um, Other tips I would have for you is, is is potentially think about which one you care more. You said while still prioritizing weight training. So we can assume that that's still what's most important to you. And if that is true, then the closer you get to your race, the more I would say, hey, let's gently shift that to your race. But you could probably get by with, with three cardio sessions a week and you could become, you could run this pretty competently. You could, you could get by if you're far away and you just want to maintain at two times a week. I think as you get closer to the race, three times a week is where I would go. If you're just starting out, I think you can like, if you're just integrating some cardio for the first time in a while, you can do two days a week and see amazing benefits. I do think as you get closer to that race, I would, I would get three, whether that comes at the cost of a lifting day or it comes on top of your lifts, that's up for your you know time allocation to decide. But from a programming perspective, hey, here's the deal. Don't show up to a workout where you care about that workout's performance really, really tired and sore. And what I mean is, let's say I have a really tough run on Saturday. It's my hardest workout of the week. It's it's usually like uh, six miles of intervals. It's not a six-mile straight long run or something like that. It's interval training, but it's my hardest interval session of the week. That means Friday, I'm not going to destroy my legs. Right? I'm not going to destroy my quads. I'm not going to destroy my calves. All right? I'm not going to do crazy legs. On Friday, my leg training is leg extensions and ham curls. Those are the only leg training I do on Friday. That's my easiest leg day of the week. Uh, I do full body training, so each day has some legs. And that day, Friday, before my interval run on Saturday, I don't kill my legs. On the flip side, um, I lift on Monday. right? And Or I have to work out either Sunday or Monday. And I care about my lifting. My legs are pretty shot from Saturday usually. And so I don't schedule a hard leg day on Sunday. I move it to Monday. And so it's just a matter of looking at your week and saying, I don't wanna show up to a workout that I care about performing well, really tired and sore. Now, the interesting thing is honestly, like even though I just said that, it still would work fine because what matters is you putting in the hours and the work and the miles and the volume. And if you showed up to a leg day a little little sore, or you show up to your run a little sore, it's still gonna be fine. And welcome to hybrid training, you're going to be tired and sore. Sometimes you're going, your legs are going to be a little tired and sore. Your feet are going to be a little tired and sore sometimes. And you're going to have to do workouts anyway. It's like part of the game. There is like, you're doing a lot of training at this point and there are going to be things that overlap even with perfect optimization. So cool. Let's move on from that one. But I will just say, I am taking on clients who are interested in either training for a race or not, but getting better at their cardio work alongside their lifting. That is, you know, we, we can call it hybrid coaching if we want. Um, People who want to take their cardio more seriously alongside taking their lifting seriously and how to manage that, how to improve it both, maybe train for a race, but not a requirement. So if you're interested, you can find me in the DMs, all that good stuff. Next question is, uh, gym is closed. How to work on my pull-up at home with dumbbells and bands? You can't. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not being a dick. You can, but like the first thing you need to understand is the hardest thing to train at home is vertical pulling. You know, you could have a pull-up bar, totally, but not everyone can do pull-ups body weight and doing banded pull-ups is okay, but not amazing because it flips the resistance profile and it makes the bottom position in the pull-up really easy. You didn't even mention that you have pull-ups. Um, if you wanted to work on your pull-ups at home with dumbbells and bands, what you need to, what you need to do is you need to do a ton of rowing. I know that rowing is more of a horizontal movement and that isn't, What a pull-up is, a pull-up is more of a vertical pull, but you got to do what you got to do. And that that is what you got to do, which is to get a really strong back. And so, all right, you have dumbbells, do a single arm dumbbell row, do a bent over row, do a chest supported row. Take your bands and and set them up such that you can do something of a vertical pull. Anchor your band to something like at the top of the door, let's say, um, or to a squat rack or something else, something up above your height, and then get down on one knee and have that arm you know, out in front of you a little bit, but mostly overhead. So mostly overhead, you take, you know, maybe two or three steps back and you get down on one knee and all of a sudden your arm is kind of up at an angle and you can do some more vertical pulling. I wouldn't lean too heavily on that because bands have a pretty significant downside of only being hard in the short position. Um, If you're going to use bands, you, I'm sorry, excuse my language. You got to train fucking hard go to fucking failure every single set push really hard until you work into partial reps because you you have to combat the downside of bands with more effort the bands aren't hard in the length of position so keep pushing into partials until you are in a length of position and it's hard that's what i would do i would push into partials i'd go really i'd go close to failure all that stuff it's motivating seeing next question sorry it's motivating seeing strength increase weight increase but it's demotivating not seeing gains. Hey, dude, welcome to gaining. Like, gaining is, when you're when you're gaining weight, when you're in a surplus, you're progressively looking worse. Like, it's just a fact. You're not progressively looking better. When you're in a cut, like, by all accounts, you're like, again, a little tongue-in-cheek, but like, you're progressively looking better, right? Um, everything about cutting sucks, except you're progressively looking better. Everything about gaining rocks, except you're progressively looking worse. And so, you need to, focus more on the stuff that you said in the beginning, which is motivating seeing your strength increase and your weight go up and focus less about how you look right now, because it's, you're not trending in a way where you're going to like, unless you are incredibly lean, you know, or, or you've never lifted before, you're not going to bulk your way to a better physique, right? Uh, You're going to bulk yourself into gaining a bunch of muscle that if you want to lose some fat will ultimately lead to, you know, a more aesthetic physique, let's say. And so you're doing it right. And, And I, I'm, I hope that the net of these feelings is that you keep going because yeah, listen, you know, I know you said demotivating, not seeing gains. Um, You're just not going to see a ton of aesthetic muscle because you're also building some fat. And that's just the name of the game. It sounds like you're doing things right. You just need to keep your head on straight and know that you shouldn't be expecting to look better and better. You should be expecting to get stronger, to build muscle, to see the weight on the scale go up and know in your head that ultimately that is what you want, even if in the short term, short, medium term during this phase, it's not leading to the physique that you're after. Next question. Is your cholesterol high from eating eggs? Mine gets slightly higher because of eggs. My cholesterol is fine, but I will say that after some recent egg-related research, I've, I've gone down a little bit. I think egg yolks are what... Yolks? Are one of the most nutritious nutrient nutritious nutrient dense. That's redundant. The most nutrient dense things on the planet. High in choline, a lot of good stuff. You know, nature's multivitamin. That is true. Uh, You, if you eat eggs at all, I recommend having more than zero yolks in your life, Um, and and that is what I still stand by. But I was having like five whole eggs a day, thirty-five eggs a week, Um, and that. And my cholesterol was okay. Um, But, you know, just because my cholesterol is okay now doesn't mean that there might not be a cumulative effect. And you could say, well, you know, like people look at cumulative impacts and they're like, well, you know, you've been doing that for a couple of years. It's like, yeah, but this is 35 egg yolks a week. And yes, I have a lot of other health boxes checked such that I bet this isn't a huge impact on my life. Um, But... After seeing some egg-related research, I'm gonna try and dig up what two of the papers were. I saw them on uh, Dr. Matthew Nagras' page. He's a great. Uh, he's a vegan account. but He's not a vegan zealot. He's pretty balanced and 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 really looks at things um, in a way that I've appreciated. And after seeing, I think it was some epidemiology research, um, which again you could take epidemiology or leave it, whatever. I wouldn't. I wouldn't leave it. I would. I would take it or at least take it into account contextually. Um, I've dropped my egg consumption down from five whole eggs a day to two whole eggs a day, which I think is a place that I'm very happy to be. You know, instead of having five whole eggs, I have two whole eggs and 200 grams of liquid egg whites. To me, once I put a little turkey bacon and hot sauce on it, it tastes exactly the same. Um, It ends up being higher protein to calorie ratio um, and missing out on three extra egg yolks. I'm just calling that a a net win. I'm still having some in my life. I recommend if you're like on a diet or you're on low calories, egg whites are great. But I think I would say, hey, keep one yolk in there and then add as many extra whites as you want to get that protein that you're looking for. Uh, Next question. Why do some people fluctuate seven to 10 pounds? Is it because my body was once 50 pounds heavier and always will remember that? Um, Why do some people, so why do some people fluctuate, let's say on the day-to-day more than others? Um, I don't, I'm trying to figure out an answer that isn't just, hey, individual genetics. Um, what are some actual specific things? Muscle mass is one, uh, the more muscle you have, the more potential for, um, water, like water retention, um, and, and obviously water loss. And so that can be something that happens more often. It could also be a, you know, a percent of body weight. And so if, you know, if you're 200 pounds fluctuating seven to 10, might might make total sense, you know, fluctuating seven to 10 pounds between days, you know, across a week, maybe you have a weight at two o two hundred and two o seven. and um, You know, I weigh 190, but there are some days I weigh 196 and some days I weigh 191 and, you know, those could happen in the same week and I wouldn't freak out. And so it's probably a percent body weight. If you're a hundred pounds, yeah, okay. You're probably not fluctuating seven to 10 pounds. So that would be one thing I would take into consideration is that this difference in how much people's weight will fluctuate certainly has to do with, um, the size of the body, relatively speaking. Also, it could be consistency in lifestyle. And so if you are someone who's like incredibly regimented from how you eat, what you eat, how hydrated you are, uh, when you eat, if I said that, uh, when you exercise, how you exercise, then chances are you're gonna have a tighter window of fluctuation, right? You're gonna have a tighter window. You're just not gonna have as many, oh, I had a lot more carbs that day or oh, I had a lot less water that day or oh, I had a lot more salt that day or oh, I actually worked out two times yesterday or whatever. You're just gonna have a lot more consistency in inputs and so you'll have more consistency in outputs. Um, That's another big one. I think people are like, why do some people fluctuate seven to 10 pounds? Like, yeah, well, some people, you know, have one type of life during the week and then they're out till 4 a.m., you know, drinking, uh, you know, and not drinking water and, you know, inflamed in the morning and weighing themselves at 11 a.m. instead of 6 a.m. and, you know, really need to take take a dump or whatever. Like, um, so there's a lot of reasons. I don't really think it has to do with the fact that you were once a lot heavier. Um, although I'd be, I, I'm curious about why that might be right. Cause you don't actually lose fat cells, your fat cells shrink in size. And so is there something to be said that, that they are, can have the potential to, I don't, I'm trying to go down that route. I'm trying to, to be, to explore the logic and potential mechanism behind that, but I'm grasping at straws. I'm not really sure that that's a huge part to play here. What are your thoughts on Couch to 5K program? So I haven't looked at it in a while, maybe the last year or two, um, but for the most part, I, I'm a, I'm an advocate for Couch to 5K, mostly because the entire point of Couch to 5K is a gradual increase in volume gradual increase in volume. The point is they're acknowledging that people are coming off the couch, right? Figuratively, metaphorically, whatever, um, and have been doing nothing. Again, that's just like the idea behind it, whether you have or have not been, that's a different story. Um, and so there is a gradual increase in volume and acknowledgement of, hey, going from zero to 100 is a bad idea. So I I, I, I think it's great. I have not looked at it exactly, I bet, because it is a super duper general program, I bet that it's not like optimal uh, or not optimal for you compared to what could be optimal if you took into account your life, um, you know, everything that you do and who you are, like if you had a a singular coach for this, but man, I think Couch to 5K is is probably fantastic. And from what I remember is is, uh, something I would encourage people who are looking for like potentially lower cost option. Um, And I think the experience of Couch to 5K is good. I think they do a good job as far as the experience of using their product. So yeah, for the most part, pretty pretty awesome. Can we get a Jordan approved running guide? Um, I'm probably not the person to do that just yet, um, I would divert to people like, uh, Alyssa Olenek, uh, Alex Viata, Alec Blanis, um, any other people that are coming to mind right now? Um, yeah, those would be my three go-tos. Those have been the three biggest impacts for me in terms of hybrid training, cardiovascular work, running. Uh, so I would not be, I'm not, I'm not putting out like running guides. Um, I think I have a good handle on the programming side of things. Um, but I still have a lot to learn and, and trust me, I'm still learning it. I'm still, I'm still in it. I'm absolutely in it. How do you turn off mental calorie calculator when trying to improve relationship with food? Hmm. I don't know. I, I I'll tell you what my reflex answer was, is that, is that why are those things mutually exclusive? Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not, that's not a rhetorical question. Like I know that it's possible that those two things that, that, constantly looking at food as how many calories are in it can get in your way of your happiest life. I can see where that happens, but I would first question of whether or not you're assuming that it is, right? There isn't anything inherently wrong with looking at a meal, looking at a plate of food and being like, okay, it's maybe 200 calories, maybe 200 calories, 300 calories, a tablespoon of olive oil. Okay, right, like 900 calories. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if you're finding that that's happening, um, it's difficult to turn off because it's knowledge that you already have, right? So you can't forget what you've learned through tracking. But I would at least start to question why my therapist would say be curious. Be curious as to why knowing the calories is harming your relationship with food. Why is that getting in your way of your ability to enjoy it? And 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 what I can imagine you'd come up with is something to the effect of um I'm I'm you know, uh, not maybe picking food based on what I think my body needs or what I would enjoy. And I'm really hyper-focused on the calories. Um, and I think even just articulating that can be helpful. Um, but it's hard to turn off knowledge that you already have. What I might do is start to try and rewire your, uh so when you're building meals, we all do this, whether you know it or not, you either do it consciously or subconsciously. You Have a line of questions that you ask yourself that ultimately end up in the meal that you're eating. And for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's unfortunately, it's unfortunately subconscious for some people it's, it's subconscious and it works out really well. Um, but I would bring that more into consciousness of what questions are you asking when you're trying to figure out what, what you want to make for yourself you might have once in, I'm assuming you're, you know, an a retired macro counter. You might have in the past been like, okay, I need this many grams of protein, this many carbs, you know, this much fat, um, you know, and this much fiber, and I need this and I need that. And, and that was your line of questions that you would ask that would ultimately help you build the meal. And I might shift that to what you know, not, not this sort of like lazy, what am I in the mood for? Like, oh, man, what am I in the mood for? You know, it's usually not the best singular question to ask to build meals. But I do think there's like, Hey, like, um, what feels right right now? What's going to help me feel good after I eat this, right? What's going to feel good eating this? What will make me feel good while I eat this? What will make me feel good afterwards? And I don't mean feel good just by like Stroking your psychology of dopamine and eating something that tastes really yummy. I mean, what's going to make me feel good gastrointestinally, like uh, GI-wise? What's going to give me good energy? You know, what's not going to weigh me down? What What am I going to finish eating and and feel full but not stuffed? Um, And I would just shift the kinds of questions, and I would be overly intentional about it because right now your subconscious goes to tracking the the calories and the macros, and so I think you need to do some sort of manual override and start asking different questions when it's time to eat. Hey, what does my body need right now? What's gonna fuel my training later? You know, what's gonna, what feels, uh, you know, what is my body craving? You know, you can eat, you can ask, what are you in the mood for, right? You know, I really like, and know this is slightly off topic, but I really like uh, um, eat what you want, add what you need. That's been something I've been thinking about a lot, where like if I'm in the mood for something, I think we all get in the mood for something, right? You pass by something, you see a commercial, you see something in your pantry and you're like, oh, I would love that. And sometimes, usually it's not fucking broccoli and chicken. Usually it's like, you know, a croissant, a croissant or, a, you know, a pasta or something that's just like high in calories, low in satiety. Not talking good or bad, healthy, unhealthy, but just high in calories, low in satiety. Um, more of a yummy food, you know, more of a more for palatability. And I, I've i loved this idea of like, okay, like I, I used to be, um. Oh, all right, small rant. Let's just go on this tiny rant. We, you know, We got 15 minutes left, 10, 15 minutes left. Um, There are two things I really like when it comes to meal building. I know I'm diverging a little bit from your question, so I hope previous rant was a little bit helpful, but two things I really love when it comes to building meals. Number one is a protein and a plant. So what you're doing when you say a protein and a plant is you're starting your meal building strategy with, with the good stuff, with this high in satiety, high in fiber, high in protein, you know, probably you know, lowers overall calories. And then when you have the majority of your plate, two thirds to three quarters filled with protein in a plant then you look and you say, okay, what do I want to add to this meal? I usually like, what would round out this meal well? right, what goes well with this meal, right, so if you're eating breakfast, you're like, I want a protein and a plant, it's like, okay, I'm gonna have uh, eggs and egg whites as my protein, and I'm gonna have raspberries as my plant, and then you have that, you know, in your mind as the meal you're gonna make, and you're like, okay, well, what would round out this meal well? Maybe it's a little oatmeal, maybe it's a slice of toast or two, maybe it's turkey bacon, maybe it's a little cheese, maybe it's avocado, whatever, it's more of like, start with a protein and a plant, and then round out the meal with what you think does that well. On the flip side is, Eat what you want, add what you need, and so it's like, well, I want, uh, I want uh, toast with butter, you know, whatever. I want toast with butter, a little salt, just fucking delicious, amazing. So that's eat what I want. I'm going to start with that. What do I want? And I'm going to add what I need. And what I need is usually a protein and a plant, and it, it, they're kind of, you know, in R P R I R situations like the inverse of one another. Uh, and I really like both of them. I've seen, I've caught myself when whenever I have a craving for something, I'm like, okay, sit with that. You know, can we build a balanced meal starting from here? Have what you want. And for some, for last night actually is a decent example where like uh, I wanted uh, ice cream. And yes, that's not the same meal as dinner, but I was like, okay, eat what you want, ice cream. Add what you need to your evening food intake, which was a nutritious meal, enough protein, enough fiber, enough nutrients. Um, And then it's not, you know, there's gonna be somebody out there that's disordered. You shouldn't, you shouldn't look at the ice cream as bad and then thinking you need to eat something good it's it's i think that that's i think that if you see it that way that that's kind of like you're it's almost like you're looking for it you're looking for this good bad diet it's not about that it's it's an acknowledgement that What the ice cream lacks, the other meal has. And that I can have both in my life and they are balanced. That the ice cream doesn't have a lot of nutrients, doesn't have a lot of protein. And so what I want to do to balance that out is have some nutrients, have some protein, have some fiber. And I don't think it's a good or bad thing. It's just an acknowledgement of where some foods score well and some other foods fall short. So anyway, as a small rant, slightly off topic, but maybe some helpful there. How does your peri-workout nutrition differ between lifting and running? Peri-workout nutrition means your nutrition around your training. So usually the pre-workout meal, any intra-workout food that you'd eat and the post-workout meal. Um, how does it differ? So my general stance for both would be, to, and I've said it on the podcast, so sorry for being redundant here, but is eat an amount of food and types of food that you can fully digest by the time you start training. That's by far the most important. None of this like, it's gotta be 30 carbs, it's gotta be protein, can't have fat, can't have fiber. That's bullshit. If you're training three hours from now, your meal better have fiber and protein, better have enough calories so that by the time three hours from now comes, you're feeling good and satiated and energized and not hungry again. And so it depends on when you're eating, yeah, so I think a lot of people get that wrong. They're like, oh, pre-workout nutrition has to be an hour before, has to be 30 grams of carbs, 30 grams of protein. So it's like, no, it doesn't. Like, and that doesn't work for everyone's life. You should be eating a meal that you have time to digest before you start training. You don't want to be digesting food in your gut while you're trying to shuttle blood to the, your muscles and perform well. Um, so let me answer this a little bit more per- personally. How does it differ for me? Um... I'm, hmm, I don't like doing either of these modalities, lifting or running, on a really full stomach. So if I'm on the fence, I'd rather eat a tiny bit less than than risk eating too much. And I say risk, it's not like it's the end of the world if I eat a little bit too much, but um, I'd rather eat a little bit less than eat a little bit too much. And that that goes double for running. Um, I've had some... You know, I, I, you know, I've looked at, you know, I know what, what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to have a balanced meal. I know how many calories, I know how long it takes me to digest something, but something about running, um, I don't think that it's, it's random. I think it, it makes a lot of sense. It's going to be more taxing on your, on your gut, uh, gastrointestinally. And I prefer eating a little bit less. I've had even, even like, um, meals that I thought for sure I was going to digest in time, two hours, two and a half hours, three hours before I run, you know, I had like, I don't know, 500 calories or something. And I've had days where like, it still feels like I'm digesting it and I start cramping. Um, and so I err on the slightly less side and with running, um, from an intra-workout perspective, I, I don't take any intra-workout nutrition during my runs unless those runs are an hour or longer. Um, Otherwise, I'm you're good with the the glycogen and and the and all of the other um, fuel sources that you currently have that you have from the meal you just ate, all that stuff. But if I'm running for longer than an hour, I'll bring some some carbohydrates with me. Honestly, not even because I need them. You can get through an hour workout without it being fuel being limited by your fuel. Um, but I I like to practice this. I want to eat and drink while I run on these longer runs to practice having to do that in the future, because that is something that I learned is that that is something you should practice. You should practice eating and drinking, finding out what foods you digest well. You know, I hate chewing stuff and I don't mind, you know, some people on a really long run, um, let's say you're doing a half marathon, a marathon, you know, what you can get is taste aversion. And so what you what can happen is a lot of times you can say, you know what, I'm just gonna bring a bunch of this thing I really know that I like in this flavor that I like. But halfway through the race, you've had a bunch of it and all of a sudden, the idea of eating more, it's kind of icky. You're like, I don't want any more of this. You know, if you keep drinking red Gatorade, red Gatorade, red Gatorade, red Gatorade, red Gatorade, eventually, you're gonna be averse to the flavor of red Gatorade. It's gonna taste worse and worse as it goes uh, on in the race. And for some people, It makes them less likely to drink and they end up underhydrating because the only thing they have is this thing that they're kind of like subconsciously or consciously not in the mood to drink. I have found that I, at least at a half marathon distance, don't give a shit. I can drink the same thing and the same flavor. I don't need, you know, but for longer, trust me, for marathons and ultras, you will hear people bring a diverse flavor profile, a diverse mouthfeel, you know. Um, something to chew on, something sweet, something salty, something lemon lime, something fruit punch, because of this taste diversion stuff. So, yeah, as a small diversion, post workout training. Because we talked pre workout, we talked intro, intra workout for lifting is just unless you're lifting for like two hours, just just fucking save your calories for. Don't drink fucking hundred grams, a hundred calories of carbs during your 45 minute lift. Like, what are you doing? It's just like, doesn't do anything. Maybe if you're training fasted, but I would start sipping that before you start training maybe, Um, or right when you wake up, right? Or, you know, if you're gonna drink carbs, drink them before you train, you know, whatever. Post-workout, I can usually eat right after a hard lift. I usually can't eat right after a hard run. So I usually wait an hour or so. I'm just in more of like a sympathetic dominance you know, my gut is like, no, please don't put anything in here. You've just, you were stressed out as shit. Um, so after a run, I usually wait some time before I eat, but I can usually walk in from a lift and, and start eating. All right, we'll go to the hour. Let's see how many more we can get through. Um, can we talk about calorie cycling and maintenance to have freedom in social situations, but also eating enough to recover from training if social and trainings are different days? Yeah. Good question. Here's the deal. Calorie cycling is, is basically the idea that you could eat more on some days and less on other days. And as long as it averages out, it's all going to be the same, like eating 2,000 calories every day or every other day you eat 2,200 and every other day you eat 1,800, it will even out to the same results. Now, the more, the the bigger the difference between your higher and lower days, maybe some workout recovery comes into play. So I just said 2,000 every day or 22 and 18 alternating, it's the same. Would I hold that, still, if we said 3000 on one day and 1000 on the next day, um, I would still say for the most part, you're going to have the same results. Seriously. I, I still, you, you will have the same results. Um, 99, 95 to 99% of the same results. You know, somebody might say, oh, you're catabolic on that, on that 1000 calorie day. You're spending it in a deficit. It's like, yeah, but the other day was in a surplus. So you were more anabolic that day. Um, you know, reduced muscle protein breakdown, you know, so I bet it mostly cancels itself out. Um, I got to tell you, I've never, I've never seen a scenario where somebody has taken calorie cycling to the extreme where it has actually impacted their gains. Um, usually you eat, let's say that person eats, let's say that person's maintenance is 2000 and they eat 3000. Usually the next day, they have a slightly reduced appetite and eating 1000 actually feels okay or more okay than it sounds. Um, you know, they wake up, they're really full and they're like, I actually don't even want to eat right now. And, you know, and so it usually works out just fine. I got to tell you, I'm not really worried about this. You can calorie cycle in maintenance. If that gives you more freedom in social situations without fear of it bothering your training gains, it won't, uh, body composition, what to do, how to do it, what to look for. I think you mean body recomposition, what to do, how to do it, what to look for. So body recomposition is colloquially speaking, uh, the idea of, of being at maintenance calories where your body weight does not change very much, but lifting so that you build a little bit of muscle and burn a little bit of body fat at the same time, thus changing the composition, what your body is made of in terms of fat and muscle without changing your body weight. And so, What to do, you eat at maintenance calories, you eat enough protein, at least 0.7 grams per pound of body weight, and you train for hypertrophy, right? That's what to do, that's how to do it. What to look for is every six months, take some progress photos and see if you're happy with the rate of progress. That's it. People are like, oh, I've been lifting for this amount of years. Is it still practical for me to do body recomposition? The truth is, everybody can do body recomposition, even really, really advanced people. There's research um, from, God, what's his name? Barakat, Chris Barracat showing advanced trainees still doing body recomposition, still gaining muscle at maintenance. The problem is it happens slower and slower the more advanced, the more muscle you get. If you're brand new to training, you can build a ton of muscle at maintenance and lose a little bit of body fat and you can do body recomposition really practically. If you're super-duper advanced, I'm not super-duper advanced like some jack bodybuilder, but I'm advanced enough where I'm expecting exactly zero changes in my physique if I stay at maintenance. If I really jacked up the volume and I really pushed the volume to the absolute limit, maybe I could make some gains. Yeah, maybe I I think I could. Um, but I would say, hey, so everyone's like, hey, Jordan, I have a lot of clients. I thought, hey, Jordan, is it practical for me to, to expect to see changes at maintenance? Which is a question they're asking because... It sounds great, right? Like I don't have to be in a deficit, and I don't have to be hungry and tired, and I don't have to be in a surplus and confront the idea of being uncomfortable with weight gain, and I can still, and I can still look more more jacked over time. It sounds great. It happens mega fucking slowly. Um, but what I would say is, instead of me telling you when there is no cutoff point of like, oh, after it's been this long, you can't do this anymore. Do it for six months. Take progress photos. If you look at the end of six months and you're not happy with the return on your investment over six month period, then you can say, it's not really a good idea for me to do this anymore. That's what you should do. Do lift at maintenance, right? Lift weights, maintenance calories, high protein, get enough sleep, all that stuff. Check all the boxes. And at the end of six months, say, you know what? Did I, was that worth it? And if it wasn't worth it, meaning you don't see a reasonable change in your physique, one that you are happy with given six months of effort, then yeah, maybe if you want to keep changing your physique, bulking and cutting is the better option. What are some reasons a body would stop responding to a deficit? Is, that, is this the same as saying starvation mode is true? No, it's not. Um, very simply put, when you go into a deficit, your body will down-regulate metabolism in response to you giving it less food. So if I go into a deficit, what's going to happen is my body will will acknowledge that I'm not getting the calories it needs and it will turn down some processes in an attempt to save calories because your body doesn't know the difference between a voluntary calorie deficit and you starving to death. And so it will it will turn down uh, some metabolic processes like your subconscious movement or neat. And so if you ever look at bodybuilders like right before competition, They tap their feet less. They blink slower. They talk with their hands less. And you might think that this is not a big deal, but it it amounts to a ton of calories. And so this is all called metabolic adaptation, by the way. Your metabolism adapts. Um, You will burn less calories in exercise. A workout, you know, at maintenance calories where you burn 400 calories, you might burn 300 calories, right? I'm, I'm making that kind of relative decrease up, but you will burn less calories in exercise. Um... You also lose. You also lose weight, and so your base metabolic rate, the actual amount of calories your body needs because of how large it is, goes down. Right? If you were two hundred pounds, now you're one hundred eighty pounds. That one hundred eighty pound machine requires less calories, and so what was once a deficit at two hundred pounds is now maintenance at one hundred eighty pounds, in large part because the machine you are now trying to keep alive is smaller and needs less. And so metabolic adaptation is not the same as starvation mode. Starvation mode is the idea that this phenomenon would ultimately lead to your body holding on to extra body fat or actually gaining body fat because it's it's hyper or over-responding or over-reacting to the calorie deficit. It's just not a thing. Metabolic adaptation is absolutely a thing, but I want to be very, 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 very clear and you guys know I die on this hill. It's not stopping you from losing weight. It's not stopping you from losing weight. It's not stopping you from losing weight. From losing weight. It is... It is a speed bump, not a roadblock. It exists as something that you should acknowledge that it exists, but that's it, right? It's not, you cannot hack it. You cannot change how your body adapts. You cannot do anything about it. You can only acknowledge its existence and act upon the facts and figures and situation in front of you. Um, And so metabolic adaptation is real. Your body, like, people crack up, but like, you know what the biggest adaptation your body makes to a calorie deficit is it loses weight. Like we, you can manually override, you just eat less or you move more, you know, you create a deficit. Um, there is no such thing as starvation mode. Starvation mode is the idea that this happens to a degree in which you all of a sudden start gaining weight because your body's, oh my God, I'm not getting any food. Uh, so we have to hold on to all these calories. That That's not really a thing. Like, it's just like, it's so fucking disrespectful to, to, to people in the Holocaust, to prisoners of war, you know, to people in underdeveloped countries who are starving. Like, it's just the most disrespectful thing. Like, it's just so fucking stupid. I'm sorry, it pisses me off because it's just, it's so disrespectful to like common sense. Um, You know, if you could disrespect an entity like common sense, this would be how you do it, yeah. All right, Um, we're gonna end the podcast there. Uh, all right. Somebody asked, "Who's coming on the podcast soon?" Uh, Doctor Joey is coming on. I have uh, Box Wellness doing a pelvic floor episode soon. I have who else is on the docket? Um, I have a couple solo episodes beginning to be written out. I'm trying to get my coach Rico to come on talk about so- the state of social media right now. Um, so some good episodes to come. Next question. I know it takes work to put the pod on YouTube, so thank you. You're welcome. P.S., we are on YouTube. If you want the full hand gesture, facial expression experience, hop over to YouTube. You know, I put a little work into uh, getting those up on YouTube for people that really like it. You don't get a ton of views over on YouTube, but I keep doing it for you people, so I appreciate it. Um, that's awesome. Next question. I had a couple really nice messages. I just want to shout them out. It said, videos have been on point, man. Keep it up. How can we help you as a follower? And I really like this question. I really like this question because I appreciate that you care about this. Uh, you can, you know, most people on their Instagram, like never look at their saved posts. Like my, my, I crack myself, like Jenna, like me, like I have a million saved posts and I never like go in there and, and, you know, whatever. So like saving my post, if you think it's a good video is really helpful. It helps with the algorithm. Commenting on the video helps with the algorithm. And sharing it on your story or sending it to a friend really, really, really helps. It's probably the most helpful way. Um, and I'm I'm not gonna, this is not a woe is me. Social media is tough these days. You used to be able to ha- you used to get a lot more organic reach. Instagram would just show your post to more people and that's great. Uh, and now it really requires a lot of engagement for a post to, to have any kind of uh, impact whatsoever. So if you've been enjoying the videos, if you've been, if you enjoy my content, you can support by engaging with the post, liking it, commenting it, saving it, uh, and sharing it on your story or with a friend. It really does mean a ton. It really, really does. I appreciate that a lot. Um, when there's two questions about the group: when is the best time to join the p- group program, and when is the next group program starting? Right? When is the next cycle of the group starting? And is there cardio too? Um, The next cycle starts on January 28th or 29th. We are headed into, uh, we're ending week four. We begin our last week next week. So 28 or 29, whatever that Monday is, that's the the beginning of the next cycle. There is optional cardio added into the program. We have two optional cardio days. So if you're interested in that, you got that. And the best time to join is right when we start the cycle. And so the week of the 28th or 29th, I'm already forgetting which day it is. That is the best time to join, but you can join whenever. I'm just saying, if you join in the middle, um, you know, I put some things in place at the start of every cycle with the understanding that that's when most people are joining. And so I try and speed up that learning curve for people. But oh, man, I have people who join all the time, anytime during the cycle, and they fucking figure it out. There's a video that I give you that helps you navigate the app. There's a ton of instruction in the FAQ, there's a ton of instruction in the program itself. And so I think, I think if you give yourself some grace in figuring out the app and all that, you do just fine no matter what. So, all right, guys, I appreciate your time. Super fun podcast. See you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of where optimal meets practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me. If you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes, that stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan lips fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks guys. Have a good one.